are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, in which the man without fear co-ops another Spider-Man villain and gives Dan Slott a chance to avoid the superior Spider-Man. Oh, Spider-Man does not appear in this issue. Welcome to another extravagant episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the internet radio show for, of, and by the fandom of Daredevil, the man without fear. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Joey Lawrence. And this is a very special episode of Blossom in which Joey tries to hire a prostitute, but finds that he doesn't have the ability to follow through. Or you can call me Dave, in which Dave has never hired a prostitute for anything more than painting his garage door in 2005, allegedly. Not a true story, but based on real events. This is the 20th episode of the show, and now we are knee-deep in the Frank Miller issues of Daredevil. So far, we've looked at the issues that feature Miller as an artist, but with this issue, we progress forward just a little bit. As Miller, the Wonder Boy artist, was less and less enthused with the direction of writer Roger McKenzie was taking the comics, and more and more control begins to slide over to Frank. This will, of course, become more prevalent as Miller is only a few issues away from taking full control of Daredevil's adventures. This and the next two episodes also mark a spot in the overall reading where I've never tread before, at least not until my reading of the Omnibus late last year. My original exposure to the Frank Miller Daredevil began with issue 68, where Miller became the writer, introduced Elektra, and pretty much the bulk of that run forward with some omissions here and there. And with that, I actually had lower expectations of the next few installments and originally thought to skip them and jump right into the more familiar territory. However, I was very pleasantly surprised with this issue and somewhat surprised with the next issue. And I like how Miller will eventually take pieces of them and build on them. As we're going to see, and as part of my motivation for including these issues, Miller doesn't just come on board as writer and decide he's running the show and throw everything out. Much like we've been seeing with the art side of things, he competently steps in, he takes the existing momentum of the comic to that point, and then, you know, if my goal is to illustrate a writer or artist's work, it pays to show their strengths. And Miller doesn't just come in, wipe the slate clean, and do his own thing, he begins to ease into that. All of that to say this, Dr. Octopus is here this week. This is a solid, straightforward issue, and I expect that this will be an awesome episode. Oh, and Daredevil Road Warrior is still on Comixology, leading up to the first issue of the new volume, so go out and check that out. So since we're kind of starting with a one-off, there's no real recap, so let's take a podcast promo break, and then dive into Daredevil 165. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. 
the year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Shortbox Showcase. And you know, some weeks it just takes everything in me not to come back from the promo and just say, we're back! But, you know, we are back. That is true. Either way, this week, Daredevil takes on yet another Spider-Man villain in the form of Dr. Octopus, who first appeared in The Amazing Spider-Man number 3. Doc Ock was another entry into the unstoppable slate of villains introduced in the early Lee Ditko Spider-Man tales. Issue 1 saw the Chameleon, Issue 2 had the Vulture, Issue 4 had the Sandman, and that was followed by Doctor Doom appearing in Issue 5. Spider-Man is well known for having one of, if not the best, rogues gallery in comics alongside Batman, and they all seem to come in rapid order from the beginning. And Daredevil got the Purple Man and the Matador. Eh, you can't win them all. And it's odd, Doc Ock would seem kind of an odd pick for the level of staying power he's had. He's this squat, pudgy man with glasses and a bad haircut. His gimmick? He's symbiotically attached to four mechanized arms with pincers at the end. Yet he kept coming back again and again, and it's Dr. Octopus who not only defeated and killed Peter Parker, but successfully took his place in his body and became the superior Spider-Man. Arguably, Otto Octavius has achieved a victory over Spider-Man that no other Spider-Man villain can lay claim to. So, what does that mean for Daredevil when a villain comes calling that scares even the Kingpin? Let's find out. Let's take a look at the issue. Let's start with the cover. The cover depicts Dr. Octopus trying hard to catch the bounding Daredevil as he leaps across the page. This cover immediately communicates a darker direction for Daredevil and Miller's growing influence. The black shadow to red ratio shifts a little. With Miller's depiction of Daredevil, there's definitely more of the familiar Miller vibe in this cover than we've seen before. Of course, we're looking at this retroactively, which is a little bit different. We're actually seeing the natural progression. Miller is moving out of the house style and kind of the colon model and beginning to make the comic more and more his own, which will show in the comic itself. For example, Doc Ock's hair is a bit more square in its depiction. It uses angles, more blocky, as well as a more square-based body type. Daredevil remains fluid and rounded, which is, of course, Miller's intent by all accounts. It's a very kinetic Daredevil rendered with the faded renditions of the Man Without Fear bounding and bouncing across the page, with Dr. Octopus's arms coming at the reader in one instance. Unfortunately, Heather, who is in the corner, really suffers from a really sloppy rendition and one that made me actually ask, who is the Asian lady in the corner of the page? She's almost unrecognizable to that point. But overall, I mean, honestly, it's a solid cover showing Miller's evolution and comfort with Daredevil, but it's a cover that's also quickly forgettable. Now, the story inside the cover is In the Arms of the Octopus, written by Roger McKenzie, co-plotted and penciled, co-plotted, note that, so co-plotted and penciled by Frank Miller, with inks by Klaus Janssen, it's lettered by Joe Rosen, and colored by Bob Sharon. Glennis Ween, I guess, took the month off. And we open with Daredevil stalking the rooftops and alleyways after picking up a hunch from an informant. A shipment of the metal adamantium has been stolen and is being smuggled through criminal channels of New York. Hornhead's first stop is Josie's Bar, where a lowlife named Joseph Walleye Pike is playing pool. Daredevil scares the bejesus out of Pike and sends the criminal rushing back to the hideout he shares with a small gang of thieves. 
Daredevil's hunch is right, because these are the guys who are planning on stealing the adamantium from the thieves who stole it originally. See if you can follow that. Basically, they're planning on hijacking the shipment. And Daredevil is shocked to hear that they plan on hijacking that shipment before it reaches its destination, Glen Industries. As Daredevil makes his way to Glen Industries, Heather is already there and finds a meeting of the board of directors is in progress. She was not aware that this meeting was being called, which is odd since her name is on the building and she is a member. But Heather doesn't get to ask any questions about the mystery man buying the company's New Jersey electronics plant because Daredevil arrives to accuse Glenn Industries of trafficking stolen goods. Now the last time Daredevil showed up and started pointing fingers at Glenn Industries, Heather's dad killed himself, so she sends Daredevil away angrily. Alright, let me stop there for just a moment. First off, the opening page of this issue is absolutely 100% win. I mean, this is a page worthy of Gene Colan, but completely marks the moment when the Frank Miller we know shows up on the interior of this book. Daredevil is walking across what I assume to be a high power line with a jaw-dropping backdrop of a grimy, dark, gritty New York neighborhood below him. His billy club is in hand, its rope is swinging around, it's across Daredevil, it's looping off the panel, it meets at the edge of the page, making this circular awesomeness. Now take away the captions and the speech balloons, you have a ready-to-go pinup. If this were made into a poster, I would totally have it on my wall. That's how great it is. Now the page also serves to drop us right into the story, just already in progress. Daredevil's on the hunt for some purloined adamantium, that rare, unbreakable substance that is valued higher than diamonds. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Adamantium, that's the stuff that coats Wolverine's bones and claws and makes him resilient and able to cut through pretty much anything. But it was introduced to the Marvel Universe in Avengers number 66, when the villain Ultron upgraded his robot body with the metal, so it made him unbreakable, and that's not a good thing. I say that to say this, Avengers number 66 bowed in 1969, while the raging Canadian mutant known as Wolverine didn't debut until Incredible Hulk 181 in 1974. And no, please don't email me mentioning the cameo in 180. It's not the full first appearance, let's not play with technicalities. But my point is, in terms of publishing, Adamantium predates Wolverine by five years. However, however, the term Adamantium, and even the concept of the metal itself, goes back to the 1956 movie Forbidden Planet. In that film, a badass Leslie Nielsen, and no, you heard that right, I'm talking about Frank Drebin, he was hardcore in that movie, but he finds a lost civilization called the Krell, and the metals they used on their technology was known as Adamantium. So the metal as a concept and in name existed five years before the birth of the Marvel Universe in Fantastic Four number one. Here's another level of mind-blowing Marvel tidbits. Adamantium is an alloy made by combining vibranium with an unknown bonding agent in a really tricky, drawn-out process. Vibranium is largely found in the country of Wakanda, which is ruled by T'Challa, otherwise known as the Black Panther. Not only did the Black Panther team up with Daredevil, but the core substance of vibranium made its first appearance in Daredevil number 13. That's right, Adamantium has a core tie-in with Daredevil himself, and granted that issue had Kazar in it. And nothing against Kazar, I just don't like it mixing with Daredevil. But they also fought pirates, so the issue itself was... eh. But it's also a key Marvel milestone. That nerdy tidbit once again brought to you by the power of Google. I should see if Google needs a spokesperson as much as I use it, but of course if I offered my services, their response would probably be, Dave who? Anyway, back to the story itself. After a visit to Josie's, in which nobody gets thrown through the window, so put the drinks down, not this time. 
but Daredevil listens in on Pike and his crew who are stealing the stolen metal. There is a shot of Daredevil perched atop a telephone pole, which shows us the darker, grittier style Miller is setting in nicely. It really does fit well here as Daredevil is making his way through the criminal underworld and above it. The rectangle symbolism is in effect here as Daredevil listens in through a skylight, which is a rectangle with inner rectangles. But the juxtaposition is even more effective as he's sitting on a round pole peering down at the claustrophobic world beneath him. So he's up there free as a bird on a round pole, which is, of course, opposing the rectangles. Now, while Miller's panels get smaller in this instance, they open up a bit on the following page as Daredevil makes his way across the city. The leaps feel higher, Daredevil feels more fluid than we've seen him to date under Miller's pencil, and this is Gene Colan-esque, flipping, bouncing, ricocheting off of flagpoles, and you know, I would not be averse to a whole issue of Daredevil simply leaping across the city if done in this fashion. But the story takes us to the destination, Glen Industries, where the shady, male-dominated board of directors are doing shady things, selling assets. It's clear that with Heather's father out of the way, things are getting even, well, shadier at Glen Industries. And I should make a point of mentioning that this is a subplot being introduced. So please mark that in the read-through journal. And of course, they are involved in the core plot of this issue. And poor Daredevil... He has the unfortunate situation of once again telling Heather bad news involving her father's company, pretty much all she has left of him. As I mentioned in the synopsis last time this happened, her dad was being controlled by the Purple Man doing criminal things, and that ended badly, as her dad killed himself. And then she walked in on Matt changing out of his Daredevil costume, and that's when Matt told her about his dad's death, and oh yeah, I'm Daredevil. So when Heather reacts the way she does, when she rejects Matt, it's not that I support it, it's not that I like it, but I understand. Matt's coming back into the picture, the cycle of events are threatening to play out all over again. So it's a knee-jerk re emotional reaction, but one with a little history and pedigree behind it. And I may not like Heather, I probably never will, but this is kind of one of those times when I kind of have her back. I see where she's coming from, I see why she did what she did. And speaking of back, we should move on with the story, so let's crack the book back open. While Matt doesn't take the rejection well, he skulks around the storefront law firm snapping at everyone. A curious Heather begins looking into the files at Glen Industries and finds something that proves that Matt's suspicions were correct. Unfortunately, before we find out what that is, a set of metal arms reach out and snatch Heather. Meanwhile, Matt and Natasha are hanging out in the brownstone when Rico calls up. He's worried because Heather hasn't come back home from Glen Industries. Matt realizes that Heather's in trouble, so he suits up to head out as Daredevil, and Natasha offers to go along, if you know what I mean. But Matt declines her offer, and the Black Widow takes the cue because she realizes that Matt loves Heather and not her. Daredevil catches up with Pike, who's trying to steal the shipments of adamantium from the people who stole it, or shipping to the people anyway. Daredevil basically proceeds to kick the asses of all the group. But Hornhead gets some unexpected help from the adamantium's owner, Dr. Octopus. And by help, I mean that Doc Ock also thrashes Daredevil around along with Pike's goons, who are trying to steal his adamantium. And then Dr. Octopus thrusts Daredevil underwater, where the man without fear loses consciousness and sinks to the bottom of the river. Okay, let's get this out of the way. Matt is not the best with emotions. Instead of focusing his anger at the matter at hand, he snaps at Foggy when he tries to describe his ugly tucks to him. And I mean ugly. I don't know if Foggy intended to get a tux that resembles the jester's costume for his wedding but he succeeded either way i mean it's checkered it's purple and green it's got shiny buttons on it awful even for foggy and of course heather gets kidnapped by dr octopus i mean it's on the cover 
I don't know if we were supposed to guess or be surprised by that, but we also get another surprise appearance by Rico. You know, the guy that knows all the disco moves. I forgot that he popped back up, so I relish the chance to say Rico once again. But this leads to one of the most frustrating scenes in this issue and many issues to follow. It's one that just kills me. So let me let me set the scene properly for you. Matt and Natasha are casually hanging out at Matt's brownstone. Natasha is in this very tiny robe. And they're going through the public records for Glenn Industries, meaning that after her bedside vigil that we saw last issue, Natasha is also actively helping Matt look into his ex-girlfriend's company. Did I mention she's in a tiny robe? I want to make sure that's clear, because to me, that implies that she's staying at the brownstone. And I get the feeling that she's been sleeping in Matt's bed. And if Matt isn't sleeping with Natasha, he sure hasn't done a great job of dissuading her from the idea that they have some sort of future or chance together. And we call that leading her on. I know, for a character that I love, I give Matt a lot of flack in the romance department, but he simply sucks at it. It's just from my perspective, I'm seeing Natasha as this gem who can relate to both sides of Matt, the superhero, the lawyer, and would stand by him. There's no way I'd run off to save Heather and leave Black Widow in the cold. Now, am I really saying that Matt led Natasha on and ditched her at the first sign that Heather is in trouble? Yeah, that's that's how it reads. That's how I read it. How many platonic friends do you have that hang out in skimpy robes? And for fairness, let's spin this the other direction. What if Natasha's staying at the brownstone and wearing the robe to try and seduce Matt? Okay, I will play that game. Here's why that theory falls flat on its face right out of the gate. A, the obvious. Matt is blind. Sure, the radar sense would tell him what she's wearing and give him an idea of the shape, but it's not going to do the right thing. It's not going to... Basically, he's not going to be seduced by the visual. B, Natasha's aware of point A and would try wearing maybe pheromone perfumes or actually touching Matt in some way or being closer to him. He's on the couch, she's on the floor. C, last issue, Matt almost reciprocated Natasha's kiss. That was a mutual moment before Ben walked in. So for me, yes, this reads that Matt has been leading Natasha on. He's undecided, actually, but he's not pushing her away because I guess part of him probably believes that he and Heather are through and sure, it's hard to rebound, but if you're going to rebound, why not the Black Widow? So he's kind of on the fence, but I get the feeling Matt's been feeling the Widow's sting for a few rounds if you catch my drift. And that makes this scene pretty terrible. Maybe I'm reading more into it than is there. And I'm sure that for Matt, this decision is easy. The heart wants what the heart wants. But if Matt was inclined to believe that Heather was still on the table, he should have put that on Front Street with Natasha and allowed Natasha to make her own fully informed decision. She, you know, he could have just said, I don't know what's up with Heather. I don't know where this is heading. But, you know, here's here's where I am. This is the ABCs of me. But on top of all of that, how do you just drop a beautiful, deadly, redheaded spy and assassin to chase after the slim chance that Heather might might maybe be in some trouble. I mean, he's making a huge inference. At the very least, he should have taken the Black Widow up on coming along. Her skills would come in handy if there are indeed villains. After all, even though Daredevil has somehow deduced where Pike and his crew are hijacking the stolen adamantium, Daredevil doesn't know who they're stealing it with. There's still unknown variables. And maybe it's me, but somebody who is after adamantium is bound to be dangerous. So a shield-level super spy might be a good thing to have in your back pocket. And of course, the villain turns out to be Dr. Octopus, which means Matt really could have used a hand. Despite being outmatched a bit, the action seems amped up from previous issues. I mean, this looks like a very hardcore action scene. For Pike and his cronies, the shots remain tight as before. But when Doc Ock shows up and dunks Daredevil, we move to this two-page spread of panels, making the action come at us at a whole new scale. 
With the main crux of Dr. Octopus being the long wavy arms, this gives the scene room to breathe and lets them dance a little bit, I guess. It shows how dangerous these arms of his can be. I mean, they're everywhere in this bigger space, and I mean that they are on every panel, remaining the focus as they wrap Daredevil up. And then, again, we're underwater. Okay, this is becoming a theme. I get Man Without Fear, that's years removed, but we've already seen Daredevil underwater just a few issues ago. Also becoming a theme, Daredevil being rendered in black for the bodysuit portion of his costume, and traditional red for the gloves, boots, eyes, and horns, the accoutrement. This has happened a couple of times already, and it's a solid effect for long shots of Daredevil in the distance. It keeps his form with the accessories, but creates a feeling of distance. So you see the color, you have sort of the silhouette and the right details. And it works extremely well underwater, where Daredevil has just lost consciousness. And I guess that means we need to get back to this story to see how Hornhead gets out of this one. Said a little Dukes of Hazard. Well, those Murdoch boys... Okay, okay, back to the story. Daredevil is fished out of the water and the police are about to call the morgue when Daredevil wakes up and gets to his feet and he runs off. Heather, meanwhile, is still captive of Dr. Octopus, who has used the purloined adamantium to rebuild his mechanical arms after one was broken in a battle with Spider-Man. While Doc Ock is monologuing, Daredevil shows up and fights the villain, dodging arms left and right. Dr. Octopus gets the upper hand, but Heather saves Daredevil by cutting Doc Ock in the face with a piece of glass. And this allows Daredevil to run a Hail Mary play. He tricks Dr. Octopus into striking a wall behind Daredevil, which has high voltage electrical lines inside of it. So when Dr. Octopus hits those, he feels electricity conducted through the middle of his arms until Daredevil flips the switch to stop the villain. Daredevil and Heather embrace and begin to kiss as Black Widow swings to the window, sees this, and really understands, I mean really gets it that it's over for her and Matt. And the final panel shows the front page of the Daily Bugle stating that the Black Widow has left New York with nothing left to keep her here. Holy crap, I think Daredevil was just dead. I mean, he was fished out of the river. He certainly looked dead. But what does he do? He gets up, he shakes it off, and goes back to work. Your argument is now invalid. Now, Dr. Octopus goes on a bit about an adventure involving Spider-Man, a nuclear sub. Now, wait a minute. Spider-Man does make a one-panel appearance this issue. So my opening teaser is a lie. Oh, it's a flashback. It doesn't count. Anyway, the issues that Dr. Octopus is talking about, they are Amazing Spider-Man Annual 13 and Spectacular Spider-Man Annual Number 1. And there it appeared that Doc Ock was going to sink with a sub. But his arm broke off, the other three carried him back to shore, and now, even with the arms repaired, Doc Ock wants to make some new adamantium arms. Now at this point, Doc's arms are made of titanium, which is still tough. I mean, my wedding ring is made of titanium. It can't be bent easily, which is a huge understatement. It's pretty much cast. So it's a tough metal. I mean, a paramedic friend of mine stated that if there was an accident scenario where the ring would normally be cut off with gold or something like that, the practice is actually with titanium to cut off the finger, since they can't cut the ring, which is a little scary for me. So adamantium is harder than that, and we see the new arms ready to go, but he never puts them on, let me note that. Now eventually, Dr. Octopus does get adamantium arms, but the funny thing is, it doesn't appear to happen for a while. In fact, Doc Ock's next appearance is in Captain America 259, and I checked that out. There, he's trying to find a way to make his arm stronger than the titanium still by using Captain America's shield. So, Doc Ock doesn't just lose this one, he royally loses it. He screws the pooch on this one. And again, Miller seems to be taking the reins of the action scenes because they are more prevalent than what we've seen before. They're more high-octane. I mean, the main clash with Doc Ock runs across about two pages, with Daredevil constantly in motion. Doc Ock's arms are moving maniacally. It's just a huge kinetic fight, and I dig it a lot. The line work, though, becomes a bit rougher, in a good way. 
there's a grit to the fight, with Miller's sharp angles adding new levels of moodiness to the shots. I mean, it's fast, it's intense, it becomes quite sadistic, as at one point, Daredevil's pinned against the wall, and Doc Ock keeps demanding that Daredevil ask for mercy as he keeps striking closer and closer, and this is where Heather, and it pains me to say this, it pains me, but Heather kind of does something cool and jabs a piece of glass in Ock's face. In. The. Face. Ow. It hurts to look at it. And it, I mean, it really comes down to just this desperate moment where Daredevil leads the Doctor to place his metal arms into the electrical lines. Now, the fate of the villain's life is in Daredevil's hands. Daredevil waits for Doc to beg for mercy before shutting off the volts, which is a bit sadistic. But let's be honest, Dr. Octopus kind of has that coming. I mean, he tried to marry Aunt May. There's something twisted there. Aunt May, remember her? The one that tricked Peter into marrying Mary Jane so they could make a deal with the devil? Who benefited on that one? All I'm saying. All I'm saying. Now, some would say that Doc Ock's death would be welcome. He is a villain of the highest caliber. He is mentally unstable and quite vicious. But Daredevil takes the high road. And the reason is simple. This is nothing like Lark's in Man Without Fear. Lark's died as a result of his own actions and lack of options on Matt's part. Here, Daredevil has easy access to the switch. It's in his hand. It would be a conscious, thought-out decision to let the villain fry. And that would be something Matt would never forgive himself for, nor would Heather, nor would Natasha, who shows up after the party. And with Natasha's arrival, Matt has really blown it at this point. Which means, instead of more Black Widow, we will now be saddled with more Heather for a while. Oh, joy. But overall, this issue felt like it had the volume turned up on the action department and stood on its own feet. It comes as a kind of welcome one-off issue with a plausible, interesting villain and a real nice, sharp climax. It also serves, sadly, to ending the Daredevil Black Widow romance, and we get Heather and Matt back together. Now, it's maybe because of the action that this issue is forgettable in the overall sense. It's a straightforward hero and villain showdown. But, what's wrong with that? I mean, the story tracked well, Miller's art is showing signs of experimentation and growth. Stylistically, this was a solid step forward for the comic, bringing us closer to where Miller would begin telling his long-form tale. And to think, had Matt not switched off the electricity, we would have never had the superior Spider-Man. Now, uh, that's kind of a far-fetched thing, because we could also be argued that without the hand, we would also not have the superior Spider-Man. He would have found a way to come back if he died. But overall, this was a solid done-in-one romp. I enjoyed it. Had a side of Heather Glenn I can live without. Uh, of course, the Black Widow thing kind of kills me. But to take a look at this story for yourself, check it out reprinted in Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 1. The Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, and of course Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. And usually I do emails at this point in the show, but I am actually getting this episode in the can about two days after last week's episode, and honestly next week's episode is due to be in the can just a few days from now. So the correspondence portion will be empty for the next couple of weeks. I apologize for that, but it was time to gain some lead time back, which keeps the show fun for me as it removes the stress of running episodes right up to the wire. But I promise you the emails won't stay off the table long, so remember to drop me a line at dave at daredevilpodcast.com or use the contact form at the show's site, daredevilpodcast.com. And next week, Daredevil 166 brings our old friend Melvin Potter back into the picture. You remember the gladiator? Yeah, he's got a mat on and Daredevil becomes his target. That is in seven days, but until then, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear.
You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders and no infringement is intended. I am Dave and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Fight for what is right